Adam Shartoff, your host of Film Wax Radio. It's Friday, October 29th, 2021. This is episode 693 of the show. Two segments, as usually is the case. One with a documentary filmmaker who's making his first appearance on the podcast. Terrific guest. He has made a, uh, an impactful documentary. His name is Todd Chandler, and the name of his documentary is called Bulletproof. Or Bulletproof, depending how you want to pronounce word, I guess. But it's a, um, it's a very, very innately controversial subject, which is school security and how it's ramped up since uh, school shootings. You know, I was very interested in the subject, and fortunately, I, I was introduced to the documentary. And then we're going to have on one of the original, remember, I've been doing these occasional now, I'm going to call them occasional, I thought I'd be doing them more consistently, but throughout the year, bringing back Film Wax Radio Generation 1 guests, meaning the earliest guests that I had on 10 years ago. Wonderfully, I was able to reconnect with Brandon Harris, who is one of these uh, obnoxious multi-hyphenate types, you know, that we we all resent for their talent. He's uh, a film critic. He is an author of, of books uh, on social issues. He is a uh, filmmaker, film programmer, a festival film programmer, and on and on. He just worked at Amazon as an acquisition Person and now he's created a new joint. Let's we're going to go right into this conversation. Actually, we're so I'm just going to finish this introduction. But Brandon has uh, partnered with filmmaker Shaka King, who was on also not many years ago, seven or eight years ago at least, on this podcast with his feature film Newly Weeds, and has since, of course, become much more acclaimed uh, with uh, Judas and the Black Messiah earlier this year. Shaka and him have. have created a joint venture of creating content. It's called I'd Watch That. And they recently inked a, a deal with FX. And so it was a great opportunity to invite Brandon Harris after all these years. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to remind people that yeah, Brandon was on episodes 8, 18, 114, and 181. Not that you can, you, the only way you can hear this, those episodes is by becoming a patron of the show, by the way. You can go to patreon.com, and for as little as $3 a month, you can become a supporter of Film Wax. And it would be a nice thing to do. I mean, I'm just saying. However, of course, if you just reach out and you ever wanted to hear an episode, I'm happy to make that available to you. Of course, I'm not a, I'm not a monster after all. Anyway, it's so great all these years later to have Brandon back on uh, for his what looks like his fifth visit to the show. So let's go into that. Then we're going to come back with Todd Chandler and his documentary, Bulletproof. Brandon will be, we're, we're talking about the early days when he came on the show, when I was just getting it started. I didn't know what I was doing, as though I do now, right? right. Uh, and then and, and we talk about Brooklyn, and we talk about independent film theaters and oh, how they're doing in New York City and Los Angeles in particular. And we talk about the Indie Memphis Film Festival, where, which is where he was calling from. So I should have mentioned that. I buried the lead. So he's in Memphis. I'm in, in uh, the Hudson Valley in New York State. And this is our conversation. Brandon Harris, back on Film Wax Radio. <laughs> 
that voice. That voice sounds very familiar. It's Brandon Harris. Wow. It has been a while. It has been a long time, sir. Really long time. You're in Memphis? It looks like a hotel. I'm in Memphis, Tennessee right now um, for the uh, 24th Indie Memphis Film Festival. Um, In in what capacity are you? you I've had so many different capacities uh, surrounding Indie Memphis. You know, I've been a Indie Memphis filmmaker, uh, award-winning filmmaker. I've been um, the program director of Indie Memphis. I've been on the jury. Um, and this year I spoke to the Black Creators Forum, uh-huh. which is one of the festival's, maybe the festival's primary um, talent development initiative. Um, uh, and was, was you know, the least of the illustrious speakers uh, at this year's <laughs> Black Creators. are definitely bringing up the, the rear uh, yeah. in terms of some of the heavy hitters that Miriam Bale has been able to put together. Barry Jenkins, um, Ashley wow. Clark. Uh, and um, and my uh, new business partner Shaka King all um, spoke uh, very eloquently. You mentioned you said Barry Jenkins, Shaka, and who else? Was uh, Ashley Clark, okay, the, uh, great programmer and writer, right? Uh, editorial director of, of Criterion Collection. This lighting is very very dramatic. Oh yeah, no, I, I have a it's it's um it's a beautiful uh you know Wednesday, Thursday morning here in Memphis, and uh, I get some there's some morning light trickling in. I you know I right, yeah. Well, thanks for doing this. I mean, are, are you, you probably have films you, you could be going to see, right? I mean, um, well, I, well, I, um, well, you know, as in my years at the festival, the Wednesday and Thursday nights are, um, you know, kind of primarily for the local audiences. Although um, Red Rocket, uh, Sean Baker's movie was last night, and who wouldn't want to see Red Rocket? Whoever you, you are, was that. I suppose there are plenty of people actually that don't want to see Red Rocket, given given it's about a porn star, but 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 it's a remarkable movie. Noted. Uh, very much worth your worth worth anyone's time. Anyone's 128 minutes. Uh, but but yeah, so you know, with, generally speaking, the 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 filmmakers and the industry start to show up over the weekend. But but the oh, okay. Wednesday and the closing night are all often very you know local centric. Right, right. So there's a little bit, in other words, uh, a little bit more casual. To, uh, today, this morning, and this afternoon. Yeah, yeah. You know, things are. I think that there are maybe four screenings this evening, and then tomorrow it expands, and there's screenings. You know, all day. Gotcha. Does it feel like there's a, a bunch of people there? Well, well, I think opening night was well attended. Sellout. Uh-huh. Uh, um, although not every seat was filled because uh, a sellout in our COVID times is perhaps right. different. Oh, than, sure, right. Socially distant sellout. Remembered. Uh, sellouts to be in in our youth in the before times but no it was, it was very well attended uh including by a longtime indie memphis board member and um uh coming to america and dolomitis my name director craig brewer um who was quite fond of the movie uh, sean's movie and um yeah no i think it played for a really eager and uh, excited house you know how did you an avid festival goer and uh, enthusiast <laughs> how did you cope during the last year or so where you know obviously um there wasn't much going on by way of festivals at least in person yeah. well you know i maybe i'd gotten used to it in my years at amazon I, I was very rarely allowed to go to film festivals you know i had to like lie to go to film festivals and stuff you know? oh really because <laughs> right you were... i mean that, that's not true necessarily true i mean i got to cover Tribeca and, and actually buy some movies out of Tribeca 
for us and and Berlin as well. But, you know, the type of smaller regional festivals that I, I as a journalist, you know, took a special, you know, special pleasure in covering. And then later, you know, here in Memphis had, had a hand in running were generally the type of things I, 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 I was told not to spend my time on. And so if I, you know, wanted to go to say the Dallas Film Festival or the Sidewalk Film Festival or something, I'd have to invent some reason, you know, which was um, I'm on a jury or, you know, so-and-so we're developing something with and I would go see this or, you know, but, you know, oftentimes it was really, I'm just inventing reasons to find some, some way to go. And so, yeah, I, I did very much miss that. Uh, as I think many of us did in the independent film community during the pandemic. And yet, you know, it's funny. I, I, I like to tell people I never miss an indie Memphis. I think the last one I, what I didn't attend in person uh-huh. was uh, t- 2015. And that includes last year when I drove across the country mm-hmm. and attended the mostly virtual, but slightly in-person and drive-through indie Memphis um, at the Malco Summer Drive. So that's impressive. Yeah, that, uh, and that's when I, I, I had Miriam on last year doing this. I can't believe it's a year ago, but I, I just, time seemed to get away. And I, I've been trying to make a special effort to talk to as many film festivals that are out there that are doing good work, which are, there are so many, of course, but so, but it would be great to be able to, to have gotten to Indy Memphis, but maybe next year I'll have to, it'll have to be, what number will it be? Uh, next year will be the 25th year. So okay. the, oh, uh, the big, big one, you know? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's good to know. 25th anniversary. Maybe I'll, I'll finally get to the Indy Memphis. Yeah. I have not been there. No, I haven't gone. So. Well, it's a hard city to forget. You know, I, I think of Memphis as a. I've uh, been to Memphis, but I just haven't been to. Yeah. Oh, I haven't been to the festival. Yeah. Well, um, not every festival gets to be part of such a historic and haunted and fun city as Memphis does. Yeah. Oh no. It's what a great history. Uh, just to avoid Beale Street at all, at any cost. Right? They're, they're probably nowhere. Uh, yeah. I mean, unless it's like right. like first thing in the morning and no one's there. Yeah. I <laughs> think it's often exactly. Yeah. So tell me, you mentioned a little while ago the initiative with Shaka, the project you guys are working on. So that was what the that was my excuse to finally reach out, extend the invitation to finally do something again here. So do you want to talk about what you guys are are doing? Yeah. Um, So we actually just launched a company called I'd Watch That. That is, you know, a production entity for film and television, both. And um, we plan to work in both spaces, certainly um, as was part of the various uh, uh, trade and announcements and and, uh, articles about, uh, our our new shop. Um, we have a deal at FX uh, Networks, which you know we think is a is a great partner for us, given you know our sensibilities as um, artists. And um, yeah, you know, I, I I can't say that I have consumed a lot of contemporary television, and yet when I think back on the things that I have been compelled to watch, a fair amount of them perhaps um, the majority seem to have been on FX over the last few years, whether it's Atlanta or something like the people versus OJ Simpson, which I just thought was so, so remarkable. Um, 
so yeah, you know, we're, we're excited to be there and, and to be working with them at least over the next couple of years. And I, we already have some pretty exciting projects uh, uh, that we're soon to uh, take out into the world, um, which I would be remiss to discuss in too much detail here. Sure. But are, but, are, are you uh, saying they're in development still, or are they actually got legs now? Or uh, th- These are mostly things in development. Um, you know, obviously we announced earlier this summer um, a project that, that Shock is developing um, about political insurrection, um, which was, uh, you know, I think received in a certain way, but I think that when the movie finally surfaces, I think we'll, it will surprise people, the, um, both its tone and, and some of the, um, uh, the things it's, it's, it's actually about. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, you know, we certainly hope to produce the works of filmmakers we really admire who are making the kind of ideologically bold, aesthetically unusual, um, you know, subversive projects that we really love. I Shaka was on, I was going to look and remember how far back <laughs> Newly Weeds, when, uh, when that happened, when that came out. I think that was 2013, right? I, mean, I think you're right. I think it's around there. Yeah. And I was also looking back into the bunch of uh, times that you came on very early on. You were a uh, really early supporter and just proponent of the show. And longtime listener of the show, even though I, I haven't had the opportunity to, to make an appearance since before my my uh, my jump shot went away and my beard started going gray. But um... <laughs> I don't know. When I met you, you were... I remember, I remember meeting you the first time even because I remember reading you in Filmmaker Magazine and your name coming up all the time as I was just sort of kind of getting myself, uh, you know, uh, comfortable and or, or just uh, familiar with the independent film scene in New York myself. Uh, and, and your name would always come up. And then remember I hosted a, some sort of uh, DVD release party. I, I can't remember for which film anymore. But I remember your being there and introducing yourself, and I'm like, ah, finally, meet Brandon Harris. And then I, th- I think it must have been around the time I started the podcast, or it was in- still an internet radio show in that little storage. Yeah, uh, in the same building that uh, that the, the IFP used to be based before it became. Yeah, a but you remember before that? I don't yeah. know. You were you were in the original storage container. Remember that? It was. Yes. Uh, yeah, I recall that. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Once or Not twice. far from where the uh, Alamo Draft House Brooklyn is now. The exact same property. Yeah. I mean, location, I should say. It's right. So that was a it, huge storage container, uh, uh, you know, recording studio. Yeah. No, yeah. that was my favorite place. I wish I wish it was still there. I mean, I would probably be, uh, I'd, I'd probably be still recording out of it. I feel like that was like the heyday of like container unit or storage unit recording studio. Culture. That around that same time, I might have helped, yeah. maybe not at the same exact time, maybe like a couple of years before, I had helped uh, a friend of mine, Andy Katz, um, not the Andy Katz who stars in Red Legs, but another Andy Katz. I know oh, they're more than one? They're more, they're more than one, yeah. Okay. Just, you know, you, you just can't get rid of them. Um, but uh, I had helped Andy Katz, uh, who's a... Uh, gaffer and a grip and, and sort of like um like a real life version of harvey Keitel in, in um pulp fiction you know mm-hmm. if like you really need something done you know like you needed oh. some pretty work done you call oh, it non red legs andy cats yeah <laughs> he'll, he'll make a body disappear but um 
Yeah, no, he ended up for some reason building the recording container unit behind the restaurant Roberta's. Where's that? Uh, in in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Very popular uh, pizza restaurant. Okay. And um, and I don't I don't think that's even there anymore. You know, like that they they probably that was in the garden that they uh, that the, that they would serve uh, outdoor meals in long before you know sitting outside seemed like it could be a life or death choice. Um, and you could just kind of like watch someone record a radio show from their backyard oh, yeah. while you're eating pizza. And that, but, I, you know, I quickly think that that went away. Um, but it was, I remember it just being such an awesome space and feeling like, you know, there's so much to be running a radio station out of there 24 seven. True. And I, I really, really enjoyed um, that period of time where there's that, it was called the DeKalb market. And, um, but it too had replaced prior structure, I suppose, right? The, the mall was there on that same property before that, which would had a lot of history to it. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the mall now, which is pretty embarrassing, but do you remember? I don't, but I, I, I can visualize it. I mean, <laughs> well, it's kind of gone back to being a mall again, kind of coincidentally, but it's, it's now city point. I, I would call it city field. I got so used to miscall, mislabeling it, miss city field that I now think when I call it the right name, I'm still, well, Nothing will ever have the iconic ring as Shea Stadium. You know, that, that they're, they're, you <laughs> I think they kind of want to spiritually call City Field Shea Stadium, and then you realize that it isn't, you know. The, the, right. Yeah, the, and, I, and, I, and I grew up minutes from Shea Stadium, so, so I have been to City Field on one occasion since. Well, there was a period, I feel like, around the time Occupy Wall Street happened, which is not too, um, too distant of a part of the past is the word when we're talking about where I used to refer to city field as bailout ballpark. Uh-huh. Bailout park. Ballpark. But uh, uh, did you have a nickname for uh, what about the arena in Brooklyn? Uh, oh oh yeah that 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 awful arena the Barclay, they the Barclay Center. Green. Um yeah I, I, I don't think I have a great nickname for it. I'm sure someone does. Uh I like how it's kind of rusted out, though. You know, that, that oh, sort of really? really rusty look. It, it's sort of cool looking. It, that it's sort of aesthetically grown on me, even as it's still completely unnecessary and such a a blight. There's something about that particular job, that particular project going up, which sort of really was, in a way, the fait complete for Brooklyn. I feel like you know, after that, there's like there's there's the the the, per, the benchmark. There's like before that, and then there's after. You know. Well, uh, was it who was the filmmaker that made the really remarkable Michael Galinsky made um, yeah. Battle for Brooklyn, right? Yeah, yeah that was called, yeah, that was a really interesting documentary. And David Balinson, his producer, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, Michael is a good friend, really good friend, and he he they they are, they since moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, a long time ago, but they've been out in there for like ten years. But he, he I just invited him on because I was trying to get a lot of the original folks like yourself who came on the show to help celebrate 10 years of doing the show. And so I, I had to bring Michael. I think he was my guest number two in that storage container. But Battle for Brooklyn was like, there were multiple screenings and like, I was just that part of my life at that time was just the Battle for Brooklyn was so much part of that equation, you know, at the time. So a lot of really mostly good memories, even though it's kind of a difficult thing you know for people that really have a strong affection a great affection for Brooklyn and maybe less so for how it's evolved 
Well, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote a book that came out in 2017 about the gentrification of Bed-Stuy, among many other things. I think it's, its concerns are much wider than that, but, but you know, that's, that's how we sold it, you know? Okay, right. <laughs> and, you know, in that book, I think I have a line in there where I say something like, I'm, I've just run into my roommate, my ex-roommate, right, who's, t- who's told me he's moving to California, um, because he's just tired of getting priced out of neighborhood, yeah. neighborhood. And he's been in Bed-Stuy for so long and it's so beautiful and he doesn't want to leave. And yeah. And, you know, he sees people getting priced out and he's next and he doesn't want to move somewhere and start over in Brooklyn and price other people out so that he can eventually be priced mm-hmm. out. Yeah. And, um, and I this line where I'm like, you know, I'm, but I'm staying, you know, I'm, I'm not reading the writing on the wall, <laughs> you know, like this sort of thing. This very strident, like, uh, Joe, this is no Joan Didion goodbye to all that, you know? And, and literally not four months after that book came out, I, I joined Ted Hope's team at Amazon, uh, and moved yeah, to, moved to, to what, San Francisco. Was it? Or- uh, it, well, he was in, um, San Francisco for many years, but, but this was oh. in Los Angeles. Oh, you were right. 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 Okay. Are you not there anymore? Why? Well, Why? Well, I left Amazon. I'm uh, still in Los Angeles, but but I, I I'm no longer um, employed uh, there. But 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 yeah, no, I I am um, maintaining a base in Southern California for now. Okay, fair enough. How, how I'll be back that? a lot more often now. You know, I make I, my own schedule. I'm not even in New York. City <laughs> I, I've I've become a, my own sort of version of a hermit. You know, so don't. I, I wouldn't know if you were in, in back in New York or how often anyway, because I've, I'm only, I have one thing. I, I kind of go down, I spend time with my kid or the particular woman and that's kind of, then I'm back out. There's, well, you I'm know, I, mean, I feel like the habit of going to the movies is one that um, has not fully died away, but I have felt it shift in a certain respect where I assume the availability of most things at home. So my desire to go out is almost entirely predicated on the rareness of the thing, which is to say when I go see movies these days, I see a lot of repertory movies. And there's actually a great, this is like like a, a golden age for repertory cinemas in Los Angeles right now that we're entering or literally entering right now at the end of the pandemic. Okay, And it does have that history. Well, well, yeah, but but I think for many years, like, you know, people would move from New York and be like, oh, how am I going to see an old movie? This is just such a shame. There's no film form. There's no film society of Lincoln Center. You know, there was this, this kind of very, like, somebody in LA like my, you know, my nose is up to all of you commercial Hollywood people kind of vibe, you know, to the people right. from New York. Since the pandemic really began, maybe in the, the, the few months before it began, you had the opening of the, the Draft House Cinema LA, which is, although it's mostly newer films, does some repertory program. You have the, um, the reopening of uh, the New Beverly Cinema um, by Quentin Tarantino, which is a, a rep house 90% of the time, showing some really eclectic stuff. Almost all of them in print. I mean, every, everything they show is in 35. And then you have you know, the opening of the Academy Museum last month, which has opened with just the most dynamic programming, Uh, not exactly what you would think would come from the, you know, the 
the Museum of Ampas to have programs of uh, of Japanese animation and of uh, you know the Ethiopian filmmaking of uh, Heli Garima or well, it's kind uh, of closer Evan. to the museum museum of the movie image of, uh, than anything else. It sounds like. Yeah, no, I mean it really it, it's um, it's been inspiring, and I think uh, Ava DuVernay has really been the champion there of making sure the programming is very inclusive upon its its unveiling. And then you have Vidiots, uh, the the um, long attempts by Maggie McKay and her team to sort of reimagine uh, a video store for the 21st century is going to include uh, a working um, cinema um, that, that will also have a fairly strong repertory bent. So, you know, when you, when you add up all of these things and then the American Cinematheque, which had long been kind of the standard bearer for repertory screenings in Los Angeles, you know, people were very, you know, afraid when they um, they sold uh, the Egyptian theater to Netflix, and there was fear that you know their programming would lessen or something. They they bought the Los Feliz Three, an, an old three screen um, baby multiplex on Vermont Avenue in Los Feliz, and they have converted it into a sort of um, European style repertory cinema. So I mean, literally every day they they. They have different stuff. I think right now they have like a Melvin Van Peebles retrospective going. They had a Kyoshi Kurosawa retrospective happening recently. They're doing a, a whole host of movies um, that are sort of uh, uh, movies about watching and voyeurism. That actually included one of my um, Amazon efforts, uh, Mike Mohan's The Voyeurs. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a, it's just a golden time. For, for that's great news. I mean, it makes sense, uh, especially with COVID. I mean, it's. I mean, as far as throwing repertory, it's always going to be less expensive. One would, I, I assume, to show repertory, and then you have less. Let's hope. Yeah, let's hope it stays that way. I mean, with the conglomerates and the yeah. streamers buying everything, you know, like Disney now controlling the Fox library, like Amazon controlling the MGM library. Let's hope that these libraries continue to be as accessible as they have been in the past but that is certainly not just merchandising opportunities only yeah we'll see yeah uh but i do agree the what was the theater you mentioned the that netflix bought in la the egyptian the egyptian thank you and then you have the paris here and i was worried about that but you know actually the program at the paris large part thanks to david schwartz i suppose Mm -hmm. uh it, it, it looks fantastic. I mean, I, I'm only getting their newsletters. I, I mean, but wow, they they really, thank goodness. You know, it's like it's almost like the expansion of the of the museum, the moving image, in a sense. Yeah. You know, it's like a, yeah, I mean, well, David's a great programmer. I mean, why would you hire David unless you'd let him do his thing? You know, so I, I'm I'm glad that they they have and 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 that that place is yeah. you know thriving. And uh, is the same for the Egyptian, or is it is it? Is, is it well, I, and it's funny, I haven't been to the Egyptian since Netflix bought it. So I, I don't really know mm. what they've been doing with it. But mm. I, it's a great room, and I, I certainly look forward to returning to it, you know, at some point soon. Yeah. It's good morning. <laughs> it's, I know I got up early. Hey, hey man, I, I sleep very little. I, I'm like a five-hour-a-night person, so, you know. Yeah, you, you know, got that muscle. Me. You got that muscle sort of developed for uh, – having going to a if you're going to a Sundance or a can or something, you gotta get up early and you gotta operate on very little sleep and 
Indeed, but but it's 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 that way now on a Saturday when I can sleep in. I don't know the muscles yeah. too too well developed is the problem. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it doesn't. You don't even have to. You don't even have to. But also, I don't have to turn it off anymore. I'm like, where's the yeah. off button? You know? Yeah, exactly. And your mind starts reeling, and I understand. I really wish I was in Memphis today. That would be a nice day for it. But uh, I'm going to make a real effort to get there next year finally because I have not been to the Indie Indie Memphis Festival, and I've been a longtime fan of the festival. I was just listening to Miriam and who else was it? Just listened to them on a podcast. That wasn't mine for shocking. But on a, and these guys had me on and uh, the same guys. It's a, this podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm going to bring it up here. I'm actually going to plug a podcast that's not mine on my show. Here it is called Make It. The Indie Film Podcast. And they had on Miriam, but she was, let me see if I can find. I'm not going to be able to probably find the last episode. This this might get edited out. Don't worry. But um, oh, here. Hey man, I need heavy editing. Let's get real. Look. No, no, no. I, I mean, I'm so excited. Oh, 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 Knox, Knox, Knox Shelton. Knox Shelton. Okay. Yeah, they they did this the show. It's called again. Well, make it. The guys are lovely guys, and uh, they invited me on. I don't. I they haven't aired that episode or dropped it yet. But uh, I don't know why they invited me on. But uh, I had a great time. Check out that. Uh, Miriam on there because they really give an opportunity to get into the weeds and it's it's nice well thank you I mean uh, we talked about your new initiative with Shaka King called I'd watch that yeah content for uh, FX it sounds like, right that's the well we're, we're developing content for the culture my friend but but, but we do have a uh, FX and um, and hope to do a lot of business with them over. they've embraced your, you got your guys, Thank you me. guys, and your your uh, um, initiative, and then uh, so it's going to start there. But uh, well, hopefully it'll be very fruitful. And I yeah. love, to get, I'd love to get Shock. I tried to get him on. I think for his last project or one of his last projects, didn't happen. First working man in Hollywood, that guy, you know. But I was there at the beginning. You know, you you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was there for Newlyweeds, man, in his living room on the well, night of his. Six, you know, seven, I mean, I feel like Chuck and I knew that we would be friends when uh, when I saw Newly Weeds, uh, and and I might have had some hand in helping it win some prizes, uh, uh, which I'd signed NDAs, so I can't tell you which. But I will say that at one of the award shows that spring, Chuck and I were there, and um, you know, I mean, you know, if you've seen. Newly Weeds, and, and you've seen my movie Red Legs. Um, you might glean that that the makers of those two movies are pretty familiar with marijuana, and um, might have in fact been consuming marijuana at an award show behind the outdoor porta potties. And we may have in fact together encountered the most famous talk show host of our time, <laughs> who was using one of those porta potties. <laughs> while we were consuming the marijuana no no who would it then let's and, i mean it's really this is a one word person you know this is this is one of those iconic people you can just refer to as one word and everyone knows who, who they are um but regardless well, merv, merv is dead uh, <laughs> <laughs> i love that merv griffin was the first person it's a one name guy you know merv there's no other merv there never will be another merv you know well, I feel like I feel like some of your savvy viewers will connect the dots. But long story short, we were so shamed 
by being caught by this person who was revered not just by ourselves, but by our mothers. That we, <laughs> we it, it was almost certain uh, a life experience like that would, would forge a lasting bond. That and many other things happened. Damn it. Name, it wasn't. I'm not going to guess. That's it. I mean, this person's name was even a key joke in an Oscars opening. I gotcha. Segment. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Might be a, it might not even be a, see, you know, you're the, like being a guy. I'm, I directly thought of all the men who have been, right. You know, famous. Yeah. I had to, I had to, patriarchy is constantly, I had to modify that. I got you. Yeah. I bought into the patriarchy completely. Blame the patriarchy. It's just infected our brains. If only we could, you know, shrug it off. Okay. But I would still think that that particular individual would have never seen the inside of a porta potty in their lives. I, I mean, us too. <laughs> like, like it, was, it was such a magical. <laughs> like, no, like you do. You even use the bathroom. You know, like it was. Yeah. Or this thing. <laughs> <laughs> now, to be fair, at that award show, they had really nice porta potties. I mean, they were really I, yeah, it was yeah. like as nice a porta potty as you're ever going to see. Okay, and I'm going to, but still enough so where you could. There was obviously it was outside, and you could. Smoke some smoke substances behind it, but right. uh, that's a great anecdote, and I appreciate your sharing that. You probably got a bunch, so we're gonna have to do another one of these soon. Maybe we've kind of just you know rebooted this because we were kind of doing it in, in in another golden age, you know, of like the New York indie. It was like in the early part of the last decade, maybe about ten years ago, that was going on in Brooklyn and in, in New York City in general, and that there were. Even, I mean, theaters were thriving. They brought in a bunch of theaters and um, also, and there were a lot of festivals going on. I mean, it was really, an, I thought really uh, this rich time, you know, so. Uh, I think it was a rich time too. It was also a great time for low budget distribution. Right. right. You know? and, um, and I feel like that's kind of gone away as well. And they were, and these films were just still being reviewed in the New York Times too. Right, I know. Oh, yeah. Those days were over. Probably Red Legs was reviewed in New York Times, is my guess. It was a, a, a rave, you know? Uh, I think I remember that. Soulless, thank you very much. You know, uh, even Owner's film was uh, reviewed. Richard's Wedding was reviewed in the New York Times. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to let you get on with your day, I think. And um, I, But I do want to try to do make want to make more of an effort to to have you on more frequently. I'm happy to come on anytime. I'm all, I always have a hot take to share. Yeah. And um, I know I would love to get more. And now that I'm not no longer on the Bezos plantation, I can I can share them. At, at wow! Free, will. You know? Oh my gosh, this is exciting. Yeah, I'm trying to be respectful, but I'm going to let it go. The next time we're going to take uh take the gloves off. Well, uh, that sounds complicated. Yeah, I mean, I still have NDAs, man. So the degree to which I will say this though, I, I do think that uh, you know, my next book, which I'm working on now, is. Um, is uh, a novel, but it is uh, okay. pulled from my own life. It's a workaround. Yeah, it's a workaround. Yeah, yeah, it's, fiction. Uh, it's a work of fiction. So it's personal, a shall we say. So, you know, maybe some of these. All that's done in darkness will come to light, my friend. Wow, yeah. I'm looking forward. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> well, this was a lovely time. Thank you for having me, Adam. Thanks, uh, having breakfast. Thank you, film, film Wax viewers and listeners. Yeah, you know, uh, onwards. Okay, and say hi to say hi to the folks there, Miriam, and uh, let her know I, I 
well, she might get upset that I didn't invite her on, but uh, I don't know. Maybe she- I will. I will lift a rib bone in your honor. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Very nice. Here, buddy. Bulletproof explores the complexities of violence in schools by looking at the strategies employed to prevent it. The film observes the long-standing rituals and rehearsals that take place in and around American schools, homecoming parades, basketball practice, morning announcements, and math class. Unfolding alongside these scenes are a collection of newer traditions, lockdown drills, teacher firearm training, metal detector screenings, and school safety trade shows. Todd Chandler's Bulletproof weaves together these moments in a cinematic meditation of fear violence and what it means to be safe, bringing viewers into intimate proximity with the people self-tasked with protecting the nation's children while generating revenue along the way, as well as with those most deeply impacted by these heightened security measures, students and teachers. Bulletproof opens today, Friday, October 29th at the Metrograph in New York City, at the Lemleys in Los Angeles, and at Facets in Chicago, among other cities. You can go to grasshopperfilm.com slash film slash bulletproof for details, or more details, I should say, of where it's playing. It's also available to rent via Grasshopper Films. If you go to projectr.tv, you could choose a virtual cinema to watch it in the U.S. and Canada. Todd Chandler will be doing in-person Q&As at New York's Metrograph tonight and on the 1st of November, and we'll be joined by an uh, old friend of the podcast, Kristen Johnson, on the 1st of November at the Metrograph for Q&As. And so here it is, my conversation with the director of Bulletproof, Todd Chandler, only here on Film Wax Radio. Good morning, Stings. Today is Friday, and these are your morning announcements. Today is National Cherry Cobbler Day. Use the hashtag Cherry Cobbler Day to post on social media. And remember, in the event of a lockdown, there are simple steps to take that will keep us all safe. Front door, 
five students, two staff members. Some people will say it's just some kid playing. The problem is we can't take that risk anymore. Bang! Bang! You hear shots coming down the hallway. You hear screaming. Bang! Bang! You give your kids to that assistant. You draw your firearm, you open the door. Well, it's really nice to meet you. And um, I was, uh, as, how do I say this? Uh, with not bad, and then and, and in terms that are not bad marketing, I guess what I thought was originally when I was approached about seeing Bulletproof, your, your documentary, having been a parent or just a, a, a citizen of this country, uh, you know, my, my initial feeling was, oof, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough yeah. to, to watch this but you know it really wasn't it was provocative um i mean certainly in all the best ways i guess this uh begs the actual question which is what inspired you such a cliche question but what did inspire you to, <laughs> to make this 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 film what led up to it was there something sitting in your head and or was there an incident uh, or tell me about that i mean it's true about that you know it's i, I was thinking about this yesterday um you know, the film had its festival run like in the, throughout COVID basically. Um, yeah. so it's, I, I've, I've done a lot of like zoom interviews over the course of that period. And yeah. I'm th- I'm th- now that we're about to have a theatrical release, we're, you know, sort of doing a, a handful of, you know, other interviews and I'm trying to approach it in a new way. Like, you know, you get used to, to telling the same stories. Of course. So there, there is, there is a story that is, you know, I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher for 20 years off from college. Brooklyn College for the last five years. I was at the College of Staten Island before that. I taught in public high schools in New York City in the late 90s, early 2000s. Oh. Um, so, you know... You're an educator. I'm an educator. And, you know, I've sort of been... Had this, like, twin twin practice of sort of making creative work and being an educator. And so the creative work was, was mostly filmmaking, but also playing music and, and like, touring and doing installation work. Um, right. And, you know, in the last five to 10 years, it's been primarily film, but, um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm an educator. And, um, so, you know, there's, there's sort of one piece of this. that's like, right. I had, I was having a conversation with some students from Brooklyn college after a mass shooting had happened on the West coast in like 2015. And, um, you know, it opened up into a deeper conversation that was not about mass shootings, which was more about, um, sort of racialized violence in the United States and, and white supremacy and policing in schools and, and, you know, this one student remarked that it was a very American conversation. And I thought, that's, that is very true. And what, what exactly is American about it? And that, that was one of the sparks there. were You know, there were a bunch a of British different sparks. Of yours? A British student? They, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was. A, and so, you know, I, I, that's a story that's like, that's, that's the story that I've told, right? But it's not really, it was, it was part of it. Okay, um, you're it, gonna have to go back now to all those people in those Q and A's on the festival circuit. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's the it's like the tidy story, right? I mean, it happened and it did spark some initial interest. Another conversation with a friend whose uh, you know brother was a former Navy SEAL who was then you know I found running these workshops called How to Survive a School Shooting. Um, I think essentially what was happening is that like there were a series of moments, kind of around 2014, 2015 in conversations with people where I just, it kept, 
I kept thinking about this notion of safety and what does safety, what does it mean to be safe? And that was kind of coupled with a number of conversations that were about this kind of industry around school security. And, and I started looking into it. And I think now, and maybe even like post kind of the Parkland shootings, the, mm-hmm. this sort of idea of this school security industry, bulletproof products, teacher firearms training, all this stuff is a bit more in the kind of popular discourse. Um, but at the time for me, I was like, this is, wow, this is, this is happening. Right. So that my sort of first impulse was to start doing some research. And I found out there was a school safety trade show in DC. And this was, I think, this was maybe even before that conversation with my students. I can't remember. It was like around the same time. Sure. And I went to DC, I went to DC to this trade show, mm-hmm. um, not with the camera. I just sort of went to, as, as an educator and talked to people and was like seeing, and I just thought, Oh, there's, there's a film here. And so it started off where I was like, wow, this industry is massive and, you know, has yeah. such deep ties to the military industrial complex and prison industrial complex to policing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a certain, it's I think, saying a pipeline. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, and as an educator, as an educator who's worked in New York city, there's, you know, I, I had been thinking about that in terms of, you know, communities in which I was working um, and this felt, this felt different. And, and I think at first I was drawn to the, like, wow, this is, oh, teachers being trained with firearms or bulletproof whiteboards or all, you know, it seemed very extreme and dramatic or, or at least surprising and kind of sensational. And, and I think, you know, what you just said, like the sort of this pipeline notion, which makes us, you know, really think about the school to prison pipeline, um, you know, pretty quickly it was like, oh, wait, these things are all connected actually. And they're playing out differently in different communities, depending on who lives in those communities, right? Like, but but certainly there's been this security industry, police, surveillance, right, right. et cetera, in communities of color for, for decades. Um, and, and this expansion right. of this industry and this expansion of policing and surveillance into sort of white suburban communities as a result of fear of mass shootings is, you know, this is all connected. So it kind of started off in... in with a lot of thinking about that. And it really started off with a focus kind of on industry. And then it, it, as I started making the film and actually in particular, as I, as my, my partner and I were going to have a kid, which was an abstraction at first. And then think, and then, you know, we, it became more and more real and we had the kid, but finding out that that, that our baby was going to be male sex actually kind of shifted my direction in the film in some way. And I really started, I was already thinking a lot about whiteness and masculinity None of this, again, is like, this is not the text of the film. But for me, it was like subtext. It was informing a lot of my decisions. And I started thinking a lot about masculinity and the performance of masculine identity and thinking a lot about being a parent of, of a boy and what, you know, and who was going to go and be in schools and just sort of led me to really expand the way that I was thinking about what we were filming. Um, well, it really sort of shifted the film. Hmm. Well, I think it's, I understand why you chose the British student scenario. It's much, much quicker. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's easy, easier but, you to know, digest. Easier it's easier to digest, digest, but I think, you know, there is something, I, I think the, for me, it, it, making a film is a process, like every, for everyone, making a film is a process. Yeah, and right. it, it sort of took a lot of twists and twists and turns. Yeah. And I think ultimately the, you know, it started off here. And then, you know, by the time we were in production, it was here. And then, it, and yeah. then, you know, it, well, it, it evolved. One thing it made me think about as I was watching this, and it's very taste style, it appears to be just observing, you know. But what, one thing I was watching and I was thinking, God, America, 
is such a reactive country. We wait till the problem is almost insurmountable. We don't deal with the roots of the problem. So, you know, which is to help young people to create programs for young people, as your film eventually does show uh, with, with the teacher who kind of does the meditations. Mm-hmm. Right. But essentially it all in all, we're a reactive country where we just come up with these insane solutions, like these security programs for teachers. So you have teachers learning how to use firearms I mean, as a solution. <laughs> it's like, but then you start to think, which is something I hadn't thought of, which I just have through our conversation, which is, Oh, well, there's an imperative. There is a, there becomes a, an economy around it. No wonder. It's like that's an essentially American practice. It's, you know, yeah. you know uh, uh, now you have these gun shows, you have a whole cult, subculture around this, and people are, it, you know, it's, it's creating a monetization. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's true. And I think that it's, it's I mean, there, that the sort of market driven solution coupled with the kind of fear that is that you know is is you know it really it really works right <laughs> in some way that it's like there are school administrators and parents who want to see like actionable solutions but i think it it, it does you know beg the question that you raised which the quick, is what, quicker what what's the, what's the what's the problem right what's right yeah. if we have there's the, the you know even right. saying that there is a solution is implying that this is a, a definable discrete problem that is solvable with, you know, by purchasing something. And, you know, that's obviously simplifying it. There are a lot of people out there who are doing really good, nuanced, smart work. Um, but, but there is this kind of feeling yeah. of like, well, well, yeah, here's some band-aid solutions, which, you know, there's, there's a sense of urgency, but I, I think you're right. It does kind of, there are a lot of siloed responses, right. Where people are, people are like, well, I'm a police officer and I can teach this set of skills. So this is what I bring to it. And here's how we right. solve the problem. Or I'm, this person and I, I bring this set of skills or, you know, we need to fix this now because I'm getting pressure from parents or, but, you know, like you said, it, it does really beg the question, like, what is the problem? And, and then if we're going to talk about solutions, is the, is the solution something that you can buy or is the solution like a, a much less quantifiable long-term cultural shift um, that is much, and, and, and if you can't, and if you have to strike a balance between those or, or sort of have a, a multi-pronged approach, how do you do that in a way that is, you know, is not sort of using, it's not creating sort of quote unquote solutions that perpetuate violence. In fact, that use the same kind of violence to, to, well, to, yeah, because to, right. yeah. One of the, uh, the things you get to see are the security, you know, step in and correct me. Cause I'm, I don't really have a, a comfortable language myself. Yeah. I haven't developed that, but, but, but around the, you know, the security folks at the schools and all of the, the monitors and the type that this technology, the software technology around, around that they're showing, they're trying to prevent, or they they can detect whether anybody brings in a firearm, for instance, like kids. Well, there's so many firearms in every household. I mean, it's prevalent. So it just seems insane that the solution is to arm teachers. It, it's just, making things, the gun culture, even more steeped in our culture. It's crazy. Right? Well, I mean, it's like, I mean, I think that that is, you know, I have strong and not dissimilar personal feelings and personal responses to, to that as well. And, you know, in making the film, I really thought a lot about, you know, restraint and, 
it was, and, and in that restraint, right. In, in sort of meeting people where they were and just showing what they were up to, um, you know, it became, I think I said this a little bit before, but it became clear to me that in fact, like when we can talk about it in a conversationally and be like, wow, that's crazy that that's happening. Yeah. But it's, it, you know, if we think about it for longer than a minute, like actually it makes perfect sense, right? If we trace there, there, are historical, historical threads that we can trace over centuries. In fact, that, that, you know, if we do so makes it entirely unsurprising that this stuff is happening, right? Mm. Like it's not shocking. And yet it, it, yet it is at the same time. Right. Like it doesn't, it's, I don't, I, I pretty quickly, I was like, Oh, it is not surprising that we are, this is, this is happening. Um, that doesn't mean I agree with it or right. no, no. The, film, the film, the film isn't about what, you know, obviously isn't about what I necessarily agree or disagree with. Um, but it, it, that it, it, it sort of, I think the initial impulse was, wow, this is crazy. And then it was like, Oh, actually that's too easy in some way. Like that's too easy of a film to make. Right. Uh, like, and it's, it's not the kind of film that I'm interested in making. So how do I yeah. dial we back have, a little bit? We even have like the statistics and all that business at the end. I can't remember if you, you no, don't do any no, of no, no. Really Definitely not. I really, you know, appreciate it. I think it power that it's very powerful as is, you know, and I, I was Frederick Wiseman an influence because you, um, you see it there. Sort of. I mean, you can, except I mean, that maybe he's, you know, he's, I'm sorry, but even, but you, you know, I don't think he would ever have that, you know, he seems to, you know, because he, he, he doesn't seem to have any agenda present, but something does develop as you watch the films on some more subtle yeah. sub, sub, subtext, you know. I mean, I think, you know, I think I have noticed that, you know, anyone who sort of makes a observational film to some degree it, it will get get a Wiseman reference and stuff, but, but I think you're right in that yeah. Wiseman does really specifically focus on institutions. Right? right. And, and, and in some ways this film is, is more but, focused on institutions and less on individuals. But I think that, you know, I'm certainly, I think Wiseman is a great filmmaker and I think that I, I really have a lot of respect for how he's able to, you know, both observe and come in without an apparent agenda and through juxtaposition and through these choices actually sort of reveal something pretty profound in his films. Um, you know, certainly he's an influence and there, there are a lot of other influences, Haroon Faroqi, um, you know, the Jem Cohen, um, who's, you know, who worked a little bit on the film and is, is, you know, as a friend, as a friend and collaborator. Um, but like, you know, there are, um, you know, and contemporaries like Brett story. Um, but I think that, I think that I, I was interested in observing, but I, and there are some sort of formalist elements to the film, but it's not rigid in that way. Like there are interviews, people do talk to camera. And I felt like, you know, I I was interested in, I wasn't interested in making a talk. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's so, it's not the most powerful moments in the film. So, no, I think there's, I think that there was, I do want to give an example of one that is, which is, you know, you have a drill, we're watching a drill meaning a safety drill if a should a shooter come into the building. There's a number of drills actually, but this one involves students. And one of the students said that he was feeling traumatized by the drills, you know, more than he felt he would buy an actual incident. Of course, that's not true, but it wouldn't be yeah. play out quite that way. But I, the point is still uh, there and uh, it's a, it's a, it's has a lot of impact, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I just think that there, 
there were a lot of influences and I thought in making it that like, at first I thought no interviews. And then I thought, you know, let's do, let's in some places it makes sense. And if there's a way that we can integrate these, that doesn't feel like it's taking away from the observational elements and that it feels organic, then like, then in some places I think it's, it's, it was useful, but um, yeah. I, and I, I think, you know, playing around, like there are a couple of archival segments as well, right? There's one that's uh, sort of metal detectors being installed in Dallas and Chicago schools in the nineties. And there's mm-hmm. one sort of assembly of, of footage of media um, sort of television news reporters preparing to report. Um, and so I, I think I, you know, there's definitely a strong observational sort of cinema verite thread in the film. And then right. there's, you know, pulling on some other strategies as well, which is fun. Like it's, you know, you know, what makes it feel like it's a ver- such a verite film, even though we're, we're sort of saying, nah, maybe not such a pure version of that, but, but is that, um, the behavior that we're watching is so surprising still, you know, it's kind of almost shocking to see the, some of this behavior. Not, I'm not talking about bad behavior. I'm just talking about we're, we're, that, that you feel like, you, you know, that sort of has the most resonance in a way, you know, those scenes um, yeah. where you're just the cameras just watching that, you know? Yeah. I want to remind people though, that, that uh, we're New Yorkers and the Metrograph is a great, theater which uh there's not that many around anymore like the metrograph theater right yeah. can you just briefly just say how this came but did they help distribute the film so grasshopper is distributing the film yes, grasshopper films okay yeah. Right, that's yeah. right. yeah, but it's gonna be at the metrograph on the 29th of, of october yeah so it'll be on the, the 29th of this month yeah it'll be the 29th through i think i think they haven't right now it's on their calendar from the 29th to the 31st and then they're releasing I think probably Monday, Tuesday, maybe a couple more dates the following week. Um, so yeah, it's, that's, that's super exciting. Metrograph is a great theater and yeah. we've been, you know, we've held out a real, like the film was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest in March of 2020. Um, and we, was there an issue that? <laughs> well, you know, we just decided it wasn't right. That, like, right. So literally on the eve, on the eve that we finished the DCP for the film, the, 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 um, the festival canceled. And so it's been a long journey and the film has had an excellent festival life, despite my not having been able to experience any of it in person. Um, so I'm super thrilled that we held out and that Grasshopper and Metrograph have been awesome. And that it'll be the first time that I actually get to sit in a theater with other humans and get to experience people watching yeah. the film, which for me is like, a, it's, it, it's really meaningful. Uh, uh, it's, congratulations for that. And then it will be followed by a national expansion. And I imagine this should have a very fruitful educational distribution because this film in particular really seems like that would make sense. And it kind of be ironic. Yeah. That's the hope. And then it'll be on people. Say again. (laughs) They like show it in high schools. Because, you know, turning the camera to themselves or the mirror at themselves. I'm pushing for, yeah, we'll do it. We can do a double feature of of Bulletproof and and Wiseman's high school. Um, (laughs) Right. Well, you should say that this is an 80-something minute film as opposed to a four-and-a-half uh, Frederick Wiseman film. Panic. It's mercifully, yeah, it's, it's, it's contained. It's, it's, yeah, like 82, 83 minutes. Although, and then, you know, and then we have, a, we, we have a broadcast on Independent Lens in February, oh. which is also great. Oh, well, okay. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, independent Lens on PBS on uh, February when? Uh, I don't know if we have the exact okay. date yet. In February? Maybe, maybe in February, yeah. Fine. 
in February on, Indi- on Independent Lens. That's fantastic yeah. news. We'll push the you oh. know we'll push the we'll push the theatrical for now. That's I guess that's, that's absolutely. But it's good to know. I'll put it in the back of my head, and we'll we'll I'll be able to help uh, get the word out again in February. Thanks. Thank Thanks. you very much. I appreciate your uh, you know having made bulletproof and uh, being able to get to see it and talk to you about it. You know. Yeah, I really appreciate you watching and you know yeah. and and chatting with me. It's nice to you know get to hear your take on it. Yeah. Well. It's an important thing to watch, um, I, you know, and grapple with and talk about. So I think the theatricals are really the the way to go because to see it alone and then just to sort of ruminate is uh, fine. But it's the real benefit will be people being you know, standing in the lobby afterwards and, you know, really talking. You're going to be in a lot, a lot of theater lobbies, I think, trying to get to your dinner on success. <laughs> Well, well, yeah, I'm just, it's, it's, it's sort of like a completion of the film to get to hear other people respond to it. So I'm, that's, that's, I'm really excited about it. Good luck with it. Yeah. Thanks so much, Adam. All right. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. How are you guys doing? Very well. It's imperative that first responders have keep track of effective press, 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 press. This is the stuff we do for the school resource officer. For the students directly, this is a bulletproof desk. I heard a lot of problematic statements. Were you suggesting that somebody should have been armed and killed somebody? Take a deep breath in. And exhale slowly. Put your hands up, don't move! Slowly. Put your hands up, don't move! Slowly. Don't shoot, don't shoot! Slowly. Full battle rattle. Slowly. 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 Ready! Fire! The building lockdown drill is now over. You may resume your normal activities. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week, of course. What else are we going to do with a brand new episode of the show? Uh, Don't forget, we're all uh, on YouTube. You can watch those two segments we just listened to, as well as lots and lots of other guests on the show that don't even make it to the audio podcast. They're only for the YouTube channel, which you can find at youtube.com slash filmwaxradio. Don't forget, please, if you're a fan, as little as just a few bucks really about the same price as a cup of coffee at Starbucks, you can be a contributor and a supporter of the show. Just go to patreon.com slash Radio. And please don't forget to comment and rate the show on your podcast app. It makes a big, big difference helping people find the show. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take care of yourselves and the ones you love. Today's special is Memphis Soul Stew. We sell so much of this, people wonder what we put in it. We're going to tell you right now. Give me about a half a teacup of base. Now I need a pound of fat bag drums. Now give me four tablespoons of ballin' Memphis guitars. This going to taste all right. 
Let us salute. 